you strip away everything that is familiar to you. So there's no, <laughs> there's no comfort at all. There's nothing that you associate with you being you. It's a bit like when you want to test for allergies, you stop eating absolutely anything that could be causing an allergy and then you put bits back in. And so while we were traveling, we were able to think about what are the bits that we want to put back in and what are the bits we never want to see again of our old life. and welcome to this slow home podcast my name is brooke mccallery and that's not how the intro goes no keep going because i like this new intro (laughs) yeah keep going this is a show all about slow Slow living living in in a a fast-paced world and did you want to introduce me just to totally shake it up yeah and you are ben mccallery i am indeed my better half this is uh, season three episode two where you have a lovely conversation with Blair Palmer from a brilliant, brilliant gamble. gamble. A brilliant gamble. So she is a professional gambler. <laughs> which is She's a really, brilliant at it. I knew you were doing a diverse range of guests <laughs> this, this season, but this is... I'm going to have trouble sort of joining the dots on the slow <laughs> thing. Yeah, so we talk about online poker. Yes. No, we don't. Blair is... A delightful person, actually, who not only has taken a number of gambles in her own personal life, and we talk about those in the podcast, uh, about the way she used to work, her career trajectory. She used to work for the BBC uh, and then went out on her own and started this company that was very successful and she found herself back in a different kind of rat race. And, you know, she took another brilliant gamble. Uh, so like get ready for the down. BBC accent. A I will great say that. voice. Oh, no. Such a great voice. Yeah. And so Blair ha- is someone who has taken a number of gambles herself and rides that wave, you know, the ups and downs and the uncertainty. But she also now uh, helps to mentor people who are going through similar shifts in their life, uh, business, life, career-wise or, or personally. And um, we have such a good conversation about that. Mm. One of the the things that I loved about our, our chat is that Blair and her daughter, they travelled, uh, they sold their, their place. And, can relate. Yes, can, sounds familiar. And they travelled for seven months before settling on um, a small holding in the country. And we, we really have a good conversation about what that process looked like. And it's interesting because we recorded this, it was, it was the week after we got back to Australia, I think. Mm. Um, so, we'll be able to tell with the emotion in your voice. Yeah, well, yeah. I, w- I mean, so we have recorded this a couple of a couple of months ago, at least. And to think back on this conversation now, now that we're back three months, we've settled into our new place. It's very a rural place. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, we're basically copying Blair's life. It, look, the the similarities are extraordinary. It's sort of one of my favourite episodes. It's great because, and I mean, the, I think the reason also that this is one of your favourite episodes is because we talk a lot about work, yeah. which is something that I think on the odd occasion, I do get pushback from people on the topics that we cover here because it doesn't always feel relatable yep. to people because yep. I often talk to people who are self-employed or who work in creative fields, um, who have a, an unusual sort of, well, I wouldn't even say unusual. It's just, it's not the status quo That's right. way of working. Yep. 
So I wanted to dive into this with Blair too, because she talks a lot about unpacking the conventions of industrial age work. And we, that's where we start the conversation. What are those conventions and how can we start to um, not only unpack them, but reshape them in a way that works for people? And the mentoring thing as well yeah. is just wonderful. So there's just so, so much fodder here that I just totally relate to. Yeah, this yeah. is right in your pocket. It is. It it's, a, it's a really great conversation. Now, um, if you want to learn more about Blair after you listen to this chat, and I'm sure you will, brilliantgamble.com is her website. Her podcast lives there too. I was a guest on that a few months ago. We had another fantastic chat while I was standing in a, um, in a closet in Canada. Uh, you can head over to the show notes though for links to everything that Blair does as well as all the resources we talk about today. And that is, as always, slowyourhome.com slash season three. We should have, for the show art of episodes while we're away, just took a snapshot of the many places that you recorded podcasts. Some pretty weird spots. Really weird yeah. spots. Yeah. A couple where I've just had a blanket over my head. Yeah. It they, works. They were great. We had chairs on beds and... Lots of chairs on beds. Yeah. That's a good setup. It is a good setup. Anyway. We digest... <laughs> well it's true we do we also digress, digress. Uh, have a wonderful week and enjoy the episode Blair it is so lovely to chat with you again it's great to be here I really enjoyed our conversation before oh me too I've been really excited to speak with you for loads of different reasons um, but because I also want to dive into your uh, your lived wisdom <laughs> After your your travels and, you know, the subsequent putting down roots, we're back in Australia. Last time you and I spoke on your podcast, I was we were still in Canada uh, and really unsure of what we were going to do. So, uh, yeah, we've landed back in Australia in, a, in the process of trying to figure out where to live and, and what the process of putting roots down will look like for us. So I'm excited to talk to you about that, of course, uh, but a whole lot of other things as well. So thank you again for, for jumping on another call. My pleasure. Let, let's get started. I can't wait. <laughs> Me either. I've got so many things to ask you. One of the first things I wanted to ask you, though, is centered on the work that you're doing now. And one of the ways you describe it is that you you personally spent the last few years unpicking the industrial age conventions of work, and now you're helping other people do the same. And first, I want to ask you, what, I mean, what what are they? What are the industrial age conventions of work? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I think it's all the stuff that we take for granted about work mm -hmm. and that we think is completely normal. I mean, we think it is normal to start working in your early 20s, you know, to, to be in education until that point for most people, and then to start working and to do that nonstop unless you stop maybe to have a baby or something, but really to keep on going until you're 60, 65, mm -hmm. and then retire. Mm. So that's the first, I mean, just in terms of that's your life, this big chunk in the middle where primarily what you do is work, work for money. Um, and then there are things like where we work. So we, we think it's very normal to wake up very early in the morning get up and dressed and out of the house before we're really awake, stuff some food down our throats if we're lucky or get something on the move and travel maybe an hour. I know it's more for some people mm -hmm. to some place of work, sit there all day, um, go to meetings, 
um, have a boss, um, be measured by how keen and enthusiastic you are, how many hours you put in, not necessarily how much you actually contribute, and then go home exhausted and do the same thing again tomorrow. And that's, you know, we think all of this is normal. We actually think that those things equal success. Right. You know, if you manage to get a job that really demands a lot of your time. I mean, one of the things I noticed some years ago is uh, if someone asks you how you are and you say busy and they say, oh, good. Absolutely. (laughs) As if the the right answer to the question, how are you, is busy. (laughs) <laughs> so I think, I think all of these are, are sort of hardwiring, but if you, you don't have to look that long ago in order to see that people worked very differently. Now, I don't want to romanticize what it was like to live in the 18th century and the 17th century and all of that, but work was really different. I mean, for sure, people worked hard, but they worked generally where they lived they often worked from home they were involved their whole family was involved um it was often more physical than just using their brain I mean I used to think I'm just walking my brain around that I it's my body only exists to get my brain from one place to another <laughs> and that that hasn't always been the case and so I think that it is really interesting to ask yourself actually what is work why do we do it And is there a way to do it? Because there are lots of reasons to work, some very, very good reasons to work. Is there a way to do it that doesn't necessarily comply with conventions that are pretty recent Mm. and generally don't work well for us? And this is is sort of coming on the back of your own experience, isn't it? So, I mean, you and I have both been part of those conventions of work um, and have gradually moved away from them with some fits and starts for me, definitely. But uh, what, what has your catalyst for asking those questions been? I mean, what, where did you begin to ask the questions, I guess? Well, interestingly, so I used to be a journalist and I worked really, really hard and I did long hours and all of that. Um, and one of the things I wanted when I left that profession and started running my own business uh, 20 years ago, I, I didn't want to work like that. I wanted to be based at home and I wanted a much simpler life. But I didn't really question it. I questioned it for myself, but I didn't question it systematically until more recently when I had quite a number of years under my belt of coaching leaders. And one of the things I realized was that there were kind of they were kind of killing themselves for their job. I mean, I still work with a number of leaders and it's still true. Mm. Their, their, their work is very grueling. We're talking about quite senior people, very senior people in big international companies. They do a lot of travel. Um, this is not fun travel. This is, you know, Monday's meeting is in San Francisco and then Tuesday I need to be in New York and then Wednesday I have to fly to Barcelona and I'm going to stay in Barcelona until Friday when I'm going to fly home and, um, you know, then I'm going to crash all weekend, but I will have all the reports and things to do over the weekend so I can hit the ground running on Monday. That that's their life. And I thought, you know, I can be the best coach that I can possibly be for these people, but I cannot break the system that they have to operate within just by coaching them. 
Um, and most of them don't want to leave that. I mean, they love the work they're doing. They're doing important work, but there's something about the lifestyle that's breaking them. And that was when I started to think, is this really human? Mm. You know, are we asking people to do something that is fundamentally inhumane? And I thought maybe, maybe we are. So do you have thoughts on, you know, on this, the system of work? Because I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There are so many people who we all we all have to work we all have to earn a living to to pay for necessities uh but but so many people who are in the roles that they're in and don't feel like they have any power to make changes to the system that they work within you know i, I talk to a lot of people who lament the fact that they can't switch off their phones even out of work hours because if the boss calls or if they get an email the expectation is that they respond to it and i mean when you're you're a senior executive perhaps or even a manager, then you are in a position to maybe start making some of those changes. But for people who don't feel like they have any, uh, you know, any power to do that, I mean, do you, do you have any insight into how we can start to shift the system? Yeah. I mean, I think you start for your own personal reasons, mm-hmm. you know, so you can find ways to do work that feeds you. I mean, so yes, the money is important. And that's one of the primary reasons that we work. But work is also really important for us in other ways. It provides meaning, a sense of purpose. We get to be good at something that that is important. And and to build those skills, it's very social. And you're making a contribution. Mm. I mean, you know, if you really think about why we work, we need to work to keep our world ticking over. There are lots of things that need to be done, and we take a sort of our part, we play our part in doing the things that need to be done um, to keep our world ticking over. And so all of those things are really good reasons to work. I think that from an individual perspective, you can start to make some differences in terms of, I mean, your working hours, your where you work, if, if the company, you know, you have to ask yourself, I is the three-hour commute every day enhancing my life? You know, would I be better off doing a job that's maybe half an hour from home? Or can I do something where I can work from home more frequently? Or not necessarily from home. I mean, you know, not everyone likes working from home. But is there is there a way to for me to still use these same skills and maybe even work for this same company, but just not in such a grueling way and there often are um it might be that there aren't in your company and that might mean that that's not the right company for you because there are lots of companies now and i speak to quite a number of people on my show and in my work generally who are finding different ways to run their organizations and shifting culture or completely rethinking the working world so that there are places that you can go where they just don't they don't measure you by how many hours you do they measure you by your contribution and if you can do that contribution in 30 hours a week working from your bed they don't care as long as you're contributing the way that you you said you would Mm. I I think that's really heartening to hear actually because so often we just assume that the system will never change, but the fact that there are organisations who are more than happy for their employees to to work in a way that works for them is, I think it's a really positive sign. As you say, not everything is possible to do like that and not everyone wants to work from home or, you know, work location independently or whatever it may be, but 
the opportunities are beginning to arise. And I think that that's where technology is such a powerful, positive change. I mean, we talk about carrying our, our computers around in our pockets 24-7 as a negative thing, and I'm not saying it, it isn't, it definitely is, but uh, the sa- that same technology does give us the ability to to try new things, you know, to try new arrangements in our work, and I think that's exciting. Absolutely. You know, there's a new, um, there's a term for this new generation of organizations, which is TEAL, or I mean, they're self-managing, self-managing systems, but the TEAL, the lovely, beautiful color of blue, um, is, is the, is the name they're given. And these are organizations in many ways, actually, they hark back to something quite ancient in terms of how people naturally want to work together um, in small units and making decisions together and taking ownership for things. It's it's, it's really some beautiful kind of systems that count as teal. But even though in some ways they're ancient, you're absolutely right. They're they're largely possible today because of the technology. And I mean, we'll come to this, but I know it'll be true for you. It's definitely true for me when we went traveling. That travel adventure would not have been possible if it wasn't for the technology. So the, the technology can be a massive enabler of freedom if you just use it right. Yes. You know, and I think that I wonder if a lot of workplaces are so stuck in this industrial model and trying to use the technology to make the machine go faster. Whereas actually the technology is much cleverer than that. You know, and it's it's predicted that within the next 10 years, about half of the jobs, I mean, these numbers are a little bit in dispute, but about half the jobs that are currently done by humans will be done by robots. So what that means is that the jobs that are available for human beings will be fundamentally human. There'll be things that you cannot ask a robot to do. So anything that's to do with analysis of data or decision making based purely on the numbers you could get a machine to do. Um, so then the jobs for humans are things that require imagination and creativity, empathy, being able to make connections where no one's made connections before, um, being able to read between the lines, these kind of self-awareness and, and um, emotional intelligence type of qualities. So that the tech takes part care of all the drudge work and enables human beings to to be ultimately human. And the best way to be human is not to get up at 6.30 in the morning, be on the train at 7.30, roll into the office at nine, already exhausted, sit at a desk for 10, 12 hours, plugging away, tapping stuff into a computer and then go home. That that does not bring out your humanity. So we're gonna have to find some other ways to work so that we can bring our humanity to that work. That's, a, again, a really... Uh optimistic vision of it because I think so many people, <clears throat> excuse me, hear, uh, you know, that, that same statistic about uh, robots kind of taking over many of our roles and see it as a, you know, a dystopian sort of future. And I think that you're absolutely right. That so I read something recently about, uh, you know, a huge percentage of employees in, I think it was actually in the UK, feel like their work is meaningless, you know, and I think what you're you're saying is essentially some of those tasks that people truly feel like is completely without meaning get to be taken out of human hands uh, and that then allows us, again, to, to look beyond what work has been up until this point and that can be exciting but it can also be scary because of something you tapped into earlier 
which is that that model of getting up and going to work in an office, commuting, you know, being busy, 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 and then resting over the weekend and doing it all again, that was success. So when we remove that notion of success or we look to redefine it for us as an individual, it's scary because how do we define success? How do we define a good life? You know, did you personally go through that transition and do you help people move through that transition now? Yeah, I, I this is a really good point. I have been through it and I continue to do battle a little bit with my ego. I mean, there was a time about four or five years ago, my business was in the high six figures, up to seven figure turnover annually. And I had an office in our local town and I had employees and I had a big team of associates that were working on some big projects with me. And, you know, most of our work was based out in Europe. So we had a lot of travel, travel around the UK and travel around um, Switzerland and France and Germany. We were all over the place all the time. And my ego was loving it, <laughs> you know, to have a sort of seven figure business and to be working with these big clients and all of that. You know, I, I, I was the show off in me was just <laughs> in her. <laughs> um, and that's not my business now. I mean, if I make six figures this year, if I just make six figures, then that's a really good year for me this year. So uh, I struggle with that a bit because I think to myself, well, what's happened? Where's it all gone wrong? Except that in those days, I was away from home a lot. And as you know, I'm a single mum. So I was away from my daughter. She was in the care of my au pair, who she liked perfectly well, but I mean, it's not a blood relative, you right. know. So I was away a lot. She was the au pair. I was working all the time. I was exhausted. I didn't even know. I mean, when I stopped working like that, someone had to tell me how the washing machine worked and what my daughter liked to eat because I didn't know. Um, compared with now, where today we had quite a busy weekend. It's Monday today as we record this. So um, my daughter woke up this morning and said she was really tired. We'd both been on a course over the weekend, training course, learning how to raise alpacas. So that was what we did at the weekend. <laughs> how cool. <laughs> We were quite tired, so we've really we made some mayonnaise today with eggs from our own chickens, and we went to the park and we tried to fly a kite. And um, she was learning how to roller skate, and then we came back and watched Queer Eye on Netflix. And we've had kind of a day. We've had a day like that today. This is a Monday, so the the payoff is okay. I'm not making the the seven figure turnover. But I'm able to say to my daughter, yeah, you're right. Let's just go and fly a kite today. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm exchanging money for time. I, I, I'm, uh, it's not a direct. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying no to so much money in order to say yes to more time. And I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's really looking at what that payoff is. And if we say yes to something, we have to say no to something else. That is just a product of the, the reality that time and energy are not infinite, you know. So if we're saying yes to the job that feeds and strokes our ego, then what are we saying no to? And I think every individual person's answer is going to be different and at every different stage as well, you know, we, we change. Our priorities change, our perspective shifts. But I think that getting really intentional, as you did, in asking that question, 
what am I what am I saying yes to and what do I have to say no to as a result is so important because I think it's from there from that that realization that we can then start to actually make decisions that are in alignment with what's important to us yeah yeah I think so I think you're 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 spot on but the you know the the ego and the pressure from other people is quite intense oh yeah and you know you, you have to it's useful to have people around you that say you're doing the right thing because there are times where I just think, oh, if I could just work more hours, I could make a lot more money and then I wouldn't have to do these trade-offs. You know, I wouldn't have to say no to going out for lunch or whatever because we can't afford it this month. But actually there's something and it might be <laughs> it might be a sort of menopausal midlifey thing, but I also just don't have the energy anymore. I just feel like, oh, I don't know how I did it, you know, all the flights and the hotels and the early mornings and the late nights and, and actually caring about it so much. Um, I think my priorities have changed too. So part of this can be a life stage as well yes. where you say that was fun for me in my 20s and 30s that was great I'm really glad I did it and now I I want to do something a bit different mm. yeah and I think being open to those 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 changes or those seasons or you know reprioritizations that happen after certain life events I think is important too because what fits us as 21 year olds probably won't fit us as 35 year olds or as 50 year olds you know and I think that that's okay. <laughs> it needs to be okay that our our definition of of I guess what we're saying yes to and no to will shift over time and accepting that. I'm curious that transition for you from working those really intense hours and traveling a lot when your daughter was young to to now. What what shifted? What was your your catalyst again to um to make a change? Did you just hit a point where you think okay this is no longer working? Yeah, a little bit. So it was a combination of things that happened to me and decisions I made proactively. So we lost a big contract. Um, and well, we didn't lose it, it just came to an end. And um, because we'd been so busy on that, there wasn't much else to fill it. So all of a sudden, this business went from being very big to very small, almost overnight. Mm. And um, I had to let everyone go, you know, I had to lay everyone off from the from the business and move to the smaller office next door. And uh, it was a little bit of a shocker. So that was that was part of the thing. But also, you know, I could have rebuilt from there. I know how we created that success in the first place. I could have just done it all again. But I my daughter was getting very upset. She'd always been a bit upset when I left for business trips. But I thought that she would get used to it because it would just be the way we did things. My dad used to travel for work and it just never really affected me. But she didn't get used to it. It got worse and she started becoming kind of anxious. And I started to notice that I needed to give a bit more attention to what was going on with her. Mm -hmm. And Bit by bit, I mean, the big break actually was she was really unhappy at school. And I tried a couple of different schools. And, you know, this thing about the end of the industrial age and the whole, you know, culture of the world changing and all of that. And yet I was seeing her in a school system that basically dates back to the Industrial Revolution. So 
you know, sitting still, lining up when the bell rings, um, yeah. saying yes, yes, no, miss to the teacher, being quiet, being being told there were right and wrong answers. And at one point, her teacher said to me, "You know, your daughter wants to talk to me all the time, and I haven't got time to talk to her." Mm. And I was thinking, but you know, and I was paying a lot of money for that school, and I was thinking, but she wants to talk to you. Surely that's amazing. That's brilliant. She wants to know what you think about things. She wants to learn from you. And you're telling me you don't have time. And so I took her out of school and um, decided to, to home educate. And of course, if you're home educating, and particularly if you are a single parent and you're the sole breadwinner, you, you're forced to rethink everything. Right. Because I, I just couldn't work all day. She was home. You know, and it's it's not home education if you tell the au pair to do it. I mean, <laughs> you know, so I really had to think hmm, that I, I'm going to have to if I do four hours a day, she can probably keep herself busy for four hours a day especially if I start quite early in the morning and she goes to bed quite late at night. So she has a little sleep in while I'm doing some work. Um, that's going to have to be it because I'm not going to have time. And it was really that, that was the final, I'd been messing around at the edges and I'd been experimenting a bit and being taking, taking more time off during the day and all of that. But actually, once she was home educating, I had to reinvent the whole relationship I had with my working hours and with my focus, you know, I'm constantly interrupted by her. Right. Um, and that's very difficult for me. And I've had to get used to it almost to the extent that actually this is a good thing to kind of rather than the intensive, I do not even get up to pee <laughs> from you know, 8.30 in the morning when she would leave the house until 5 when she would walk back in to you know, I'm up and about and I want to go and see what's happening with the chickens. So I'll go and check what's happening with my veggies in the greenhouse. And then I'll come back and I'll do another half an hour. The whole rhythm is completely different. That's a wonderful. I love that you use the word rhythm um, because I think that's exactly what you're describing, isn't it? I mean, when you have that intensive work set up where you could start work when your daughter left and, and work until she arrived home. That's a routine, you know, and that's quite rigid and regimented. Whereas just having to exist and work and teach and, you know, educate and all the other things that, that are part of your day, that's rhythmic because some days you're going to, to move through at a faster pace and other times it's slow and sometimes it's, you know, staccato sort of rhythm. And I think that it's a really helpful way of adjusting to something that needs to be much more fluid than than maybe what you were used to yeah but I also wonder if that is actually more human absolutely because you know she's a kid so she's not yet been indoctrinated to this you have to sit and focus on this thing for seven hours before you're allowed to move so one of the things I noticed when we were traveling we we were in um, Italy for about a month and we had a very nice apartment there in in beautiful countryside surrounded by countryside and we were traveling around in our RV and we had brought a mini trampoline. We took a mini trampoline all over <laughs> Europe with us. And it was my daughter's and she had bought it for herself and she did not want to leave it in storage for the year that we were traveling. So we were doing some home ed stuff down in the, in the courtyard. I can't remember what it was, some maths or something. And after about 10 minutes, she said, 
I need to go and jump. And so she ran off. She jumped on the trampoline for, you know, three or four minutes. And then she came back and said, right, let's do some more. And we did another 10 minutes. And then she's, I'm going to go and jump. And off she went, do a bit more jumping, come back. And then we carried on. And I thought, that is brilliant. Every bit of her body knows what to do. Her body knows that she can focus and learn for about 10 minutes. Then she needs to go and do something physical. And there is scientific evidence that um, when you follow a, a learning activity, with a physical activity and you get your blood pumping, you, you're more likely to remember what you learned in the learning activity than if you just either take a complete break or if you continue on. So, you know, she was just going with instincts and she was doing it perfectly. So if I'm influenced a little by her rhythm, I think that can only be a good thing. Um, I just think that everyone should have a mini trampoline with them at all times. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> mad the things you brought with us but that was that was probably the craziest thing uh so uh i mean you, so you you guys traveled together around europe for was it se- did you go for a year we were gonna go for a year we ended up going for seven months yes, okay. we've had enough yeah. <laughs> seven months, yeah and uh and and on your return so actually take a step back you sold your house didn't you before you left for your trip yeah yeah we did while we were away, um, it was on the market, yeah, sure. and it sold while we were away. Mm. Uh, and was that obviously an intentional choice so that when you returned you would settle and put roots down somewhere else? You know, was was that a a question that, that you and your daughter were asking on your travels as to where you wanted to settle or did you already know? Yeah, it was. So what I knew was, it's a little complicated. So we had a house that we were living in, in a very nice town in Wiltshire, in the Wiltshire countryside in the UK. And we wanted to sell that house. And my parents' house was empty because they'd moved. So we moved into their empty house in another nearby town while we sold our first house. And then (laughs) while we were in my parents' house, we as a family decided we might as well sell that as well. (laughs) Um, And so we were, we were going to be homeless. And, um, and at the same time, we just started the home education. So my daughter had been home for about two or three months. And I realized we've got this perfect opportunity where we are not obliged to live in any of these houses so we have no costs associated with them and um, we have no fixed routine because she's not going to school and my business is pretty mobile I'm traveling a bit anyway so if I need to go to France to give a keynote speech we can just go to France it doesn't matter that we're not flying from the UK we can be flying from Croatia it makes no difference um, so we had this sort of perfect opportunity and um and decided to take it, knowing exactly that, that we would, while we were away, we would work out what we what we wanted. And one of the amazing things about that kind of travel is that you, you strip away everything that is familiar to you mm-hmm. and 
So there's no, <laughs> there's no comfort at all. There's nothing that you associate with you being you, really. I mean, maybe the mini trampoline, maybe, you know, some of the things like that. We had our dogs with us, so that made us feel like us. But, you know, different country, living a completely different lifestyle, um, completely different routines, um, not with our friends, not seeing our family so much. So, You've stripped everything away. It's a bit like when you want to test for allergies. You stop eating absolutely anything that could be causing an allergy, and then you put bits back in. And so while we were traveling, we were able to think about what are the bits that we want to put back in, and what are the bits we never want to see again of our old life. And one of the things we loved when we were traveling was open space. We, we loved when there was, a, we didn't mind if the apartment was small or the house was small, but we loved when it had a really, really big garden or it was surrounded by countryside. And we loved whenever we were interacting with animals and we thought, well, this is very important. So when we get back, we need to make sure that we're not moving back into a house with a little garden in a town, but we are somewhere rural and we can you know, we have our own field and we can start a kind of small holding or homestead um, that with lots of animals and that will really, really work for us. And that's exactly what we did. So what was the call to, to return and to put down roots after seven months? It was a combination of things, um, but the most compelling was that my mum wasn't very well. So she started getting ill while we were travelling um, and we got around that by coming back to the UK every six weeks or so. So wherever we were, um, we would drive back across Europe, oh, wow. get across Europe to get back to the UK to spend some time with, with them, with my parents. And then off we would go to the next place. So that was quite a significant compromise in terms of the travel. And that made it much more exhausting than it, needed to, than it would have been in other circumstances. You know, the, the ideal thing to do when you're in Croatia is go to Italy, mm-hmm. not to drive <laughs> you know, rapidly right across through all those, through the Alps and all of that, Germany, Switzerland, France, then back on the ferry and then to the UK and then drive across the UK to hang out with your parents for a bit and then go to Italy. Right. <laughs> right. Right. That That's not ideal. So um, that, that made the journeys kind of grueling. And then it was also getting to the point where mum was more and more unwell and my sister was taking a lot of the responsibility and I really felt like, okay, that, that we're done. We, we need to go back now. But we're not just going to go back and say, oh, well, that travel was a thing we did once. We're going to go back and we're going to use this uh, to step into our new life mm-hmm. so that actually it's all been something and I mean, the, the timing really worked out perfectly. And our, just before we went on our final trip, we came back to the UK. We still had one more trip to go, which was Ireland. And while we were in the UK, just before we went to Ireland, we found this house. And so while we were in Ireland, we were signing all the paperwork. And when we got back from there, we were able to move in a few days after we came back to England. But really, the, the timing couldn't have been better. And it seemed like a bit of a sign from the universe that we were doing the right thing. Synchronicity. Yeah, about, you know, about half an hour from, 40 minutes from where my parents live. So really perfect. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful. Um, I mean, look, that sounds like it was very taxing, though. I can understand why seven months was was the right amount of time for you and your daughter. 
one of the questions I wanted to ask you about your experience working while traveling was this this idea that I truly don't believe in of, of balance, you know, work-life balance. I think that it's quite a damaging concept that, uh, you know, has people competing against some ideal uh, where somehow if you just work hard enough that everything will balance itself out and you, you won't be exhausted anymore. Did you f- ever find an approach to balance that worked for you and that continues to work for you as you've settled into your, your new home? Well, this is so funny because I used our travel adventure to launch a brilliant gamble, the, the company that helps other people to take these kind of risks or make some change in their life at a certain point. And it, it, it's a gamble, but it's also a kind of brilliant one. So I'm on my travels and I'm writing about balance and finding yourself and what actually happens when you make a big change in your life. And the thing that I was struggling the most with was genuinely feeling balanced. I thought that if I took all of the things that were triggers for my or seemed to be the causes of my stress, if I took them all away, then I would be balanced. I would feel peaceful. I'd be able to be present. And there was, and it didn't happen. I was really stressed. I was worried about, you know, where are we going to sleep tonight? Or is the van going to break down? Or why is all this rubbish everywhere, you know, in our apartment? <laughs> I keep one surface clean. Why did we bring so many toys? Why isn't anyone helping me unload the van? You know, it just, it just so imbalanced all the time. I remember this one day when I'd spent the whole day tidying our apartment. And I was furious with my daughter. And I said to her, I can't believe it. I didn't have one minute today to sit outside. You've done nothing all day. And I've been busy all day tidying this place up. It's a terrible mess. And I would like to have sat outside today and reading my book in this beautiful countryside and instead of been in here. And she said in that annoying way that children sometimes do, she said, well, <laughs> mommy, that was your choice. <laughs> And I'm really annoyed about it, but I also thought, oh, yeah, it was. There wasn't anything that I did that day that needed to be done that day. I could have sat outside in the sun and read my book. And I I realized that this whole thing about work-life balance was a lie. There was no such thing as work-life balance. But there is such a thing as a balanced mind. Mm. So for all that we try to find work-life balance in terms of do more, do less, longer hours, fewer hours, work from home, all of these things are attempts to to have more work-life balance, but actually balance comes from within. So even if you're financially independent and you don't have to work and you have a lovely house and a maid comes every day to clear up your your rubbish you could still be balanced if your mind wasn't balanced and equally you could have a really hectic life but feel balanced because your mind is balanced so I realized actually the work that most of us need to do is on our balancing our minds rather than trying to balance our lives I think is a fantastic way of looking at it. And don't kids just cut to the cut straight to the quick sometimes? Oh, annoying. She still does it now. I mean, she's only 11, but she's very, very wise. And she does 
she just makes me laugh. And it's also irritating, of course, because you you just don't want an 11-year-old to be able to see <laughs> things that you, with all your wisdom and years behind you, you can't, you can't spot. So, yeah, sometimes sometimes she uses the line, well, it was your choice, just once too often yes, yes. in the day. And I think, well, it's only my choice. <laughs> but actually, it always is. It always is. That's actually a, a thing that it, it doesn't matter if a, if a child says it or if an adult says it to you. It really does um, rankle, I think, sometimes when we are complaining about things that we're doing and someone says, well, but it is a choice. <laughs> well, but it doesn't feel like one. you know. And you really do need to force yourself to step back and acknowledge that actually it is, you know, and, and that's not always a, a comfortable thing to recognize, but it is important. There's normally something, one of the things I've noticed is that the the truth that you hold on to most tightly is normally the one that's giving you the, the most trouble. Hmm. You think to yourself, well, this cannot be changed, this whatever it is for you. This is just the way it is. Everything else, okay, fine. I'm willing to accept that maybe those things are not true, but this is definitely, definitely true. And normally I think that thing that you're holding on so tightly to, if you could loosen up your grip on it, a lot becomes possible. So, you know, I, I thought we ca- I cannot home educate. I, I knew some people that did it. I thought that's lovely for them. He's got a successful business. She's a former teacher. Um, she stayed at home for 18 years home educating her kids it's fine for them I can't do it single mum you know not possible I'd rejected it out of hand and then it turned out to be a really good thing for us the same with the travel we can't do it I'm running a business single mum that often comes up um uh we can't afford it you know it's just not possible for us look at all these lovely Instagram photos of everybody else doing it but I can't do it because and actually I when I started to question that, I thought, what if I hold that more loosely, that belief, what could be possible? Um, running small holding, same thing, can't afford it, too busy, you know, you can't buy anything worth having in this country for less than a half a million with land. Eh, turns out not to be the case. <laughs> turns out you can find little secret houses with bits of land and um, you can afford them. Yeah. So, when when clients are holding on very very tight when it's almost when you reject it like as as well you know it I'm just trying to think of an example um of the sort of thing that people say as if it's I I was running a workshop the other day for some filmmakers and they're producers directors and writers and one of them said well you know we're all mad because we're all in the creative industry so we can't be helped is it true though is that true or is that just very convenient to believe that because it it means that you you're stuck and you have no responsibility for changing it and of course during the session it became clear that that just wasn't true and it wasn't even serving them and they let it go and they started having some amazing ideas about how they could move forward with their film projects yeah, that's an interesting point that it wasn't even that story wasn't even serving them then, you know, and, yeah. and and perhaps these stories come into being because for one one moment in one instance it does service to to say that. But then 
we stick with it as if it's going to continue to to service and it, it doesn't it maybe didn't even ever service but yet because it's convenient because it's comfortable even if it's uncomfortable we stay there you know and the discomfort of moving yeah. away from that is is scary so we stick with the with with the familiar discomfort rather than the new one that's right there, there's always a payoff mm. you know when i ask clients they, they say um you know about some situation they're in and i say What's the payoff? What are you getting from that? And they all say, well, nothing. It's stupid. And I and I say, well, not logically. It, logically, yes, it is stupid. But emotionally, what are you getting? And there's normally something, even if it's as, as simple as this makes me right. So a, a belief like people like me can't do stuff like that. Believing that and then proving it by not doing the things that other people do that you couldn't possibly do, makes you right. And we like to be right. So the worst thing about being told by an 11-year-old, well, that was your choice, is, oh, my God, I've been wrong today in front of my 11-year-old. You know, and now I have to admit that I've been wrong. The easier thing is to argue with her and say, this isn't, this wasn't my choice. And then I get to be right. But I also get to be right and repeat that horrible day over and over and over again. Mm. That's, I'm going to be thinking on that for a long time, actually, that idea of, of sometimes that is the reason we continue with the stories, just because we want to be right. Uh, and one of the other things I'm going to carry away from our conversation is your description of how you stripped everything away when you traveled, you know, you removed everything that kind of signified your Eunice to particularly externally, you know, uh, you were left with your core of your daughter and yourself and your dogs and your trampoline and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and then you, you got to choose what bits to add back in. And I, I love that because it's, that is it, that is living with intention. You know, that is making intentional choices about what we allow into our lives. And we don't, I don't think it's necessary to, to, to travel in order to do so. But I do think it takes an act of courage to remove all of those things, even if it's an experiment, you know, for 30 days, uh, removing these, these external signifiers or whatever it may be. But I love the visual that you had of, of putting things back in bit by bit. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for sharing so so wonderfully about your work and your experiences and the things that you're learning. I, I've enjoyed it immensely. I know people laugh at me because I say it so often at the end of episodes, but I could genuinely talk to you for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, me too. I, I've really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been very interesting post-travel and now we are more settled to try to think about what the – what the lessons have been. And that, one of the things that I found so interesting about doing something quite dramatic like that is that the lessons that you end up learning are not the lessons you thought you were going to learn. Um, mm -hmm. That in itself is a great reason to shake things up. It's just to see what is the next thing I'm supposed to learn about and not try to anticipate it. But any, any sort of change like that, even a small change in your life, makes you look at life in a different way and learn something new about yourself. And that's a good enough reason to do it as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm very much in the waiting for clarity stage right now. You know, my, I think I'm still reeling from our re-entry back into Australia, but you're right. You can't rush these things. And, and the lessons that we have already learned while we were traveling were not the ones that I expected, you know, and, and being open to that is, 
a lesson in itself, I think. Mm, absolutely. Blair, thank you so much for your time and your generosity and, and your wisdom. Uh, I've, yeah, I've really, really enjoyed every second of it. Thanks, Brett. I have too. Who is that? Hi,